Please turn in your Bibles to Luke, Luke chapter 18. I have the privilege and joy of preaching on the crown jewel of the Reformation, the doctrine of uh, forensic justification by faith alone. I think this is a wonderful passage uh, to describe it, but there are many people who are deceived, just as uh, Rodney earlier pointed out, that there were many who thought that they were okay, but did not have true faith in, in the coming Messiah in the Old Testament. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Father God, as we look into this scripture, we want to understand not only what it means, but we want to live it out. And I pray that you would enable each one of us to have a faith that lays claim to Christ, a faith that truly enters in. Uh, to all that uh, we have stored up for us in Christ Jesus. And we pray that uh, you would bless this congregation with your insight. In Jesus' name, amen. A little over a hundred years ago, Harry A. Ironside came down from Canada and he was doing some uh, evangelistic work on the streets of uh, some of the cities of California. And he kept running into these people who were pluralists and uh, who thought it was rather arrogant for somebody to think that Christianity was the only way and that other religions were going to hell. For example, one person said to him, Look here, sir, there are hundreds of religions in this country, and the followers of each sect thinks theirs the only right one. And Ironside said, No, there's not hundreds of religions. There's only two religions. And this guy looked kind of dumbfounded, and he said, You can't be serious. Now, surely you know there are hundreds of religions in America. And Ironside's reply was, Not at all, sir. I find I admit many shades of difference in the opinions of those comprising the two great schools, but after all, there are but two. The one covers all who expect salvation by doing, the other all who have been saved by something done. And I thought that was a wonderful, wonderful answer. That is the heart of the difference between Islam and Christianity. Every member of Islam is hoping that they will be able to do enough uh, for them to be able to be saved, whereas Christians, true Christians, are trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on their behalf. And by the way, this was the difference between Roman Catholicism and the Reformers. The Reformers actually denied that the Romanists uh, were Catholics. They said, you can't use that term Catholic. You've abandoned the Catholic faith, the universal faith. Uh, you've abandoned the five solas of the early, Reforma uh, of the early church, and especially 
uh, of Augustine, uh, but the reformers were uh, uh, de definitely taking the church back uh, when they were, that's why it's called reform. They were bringing a reformation back to what the church used to be. And certainly when it comes to the issue that Ironside brought up, the Roman Catholics were at least in part basing their salvation on something that they were doing. So Augustine and the Reformation really crystallized it, spoke of the five solas of the Reformation. Uh, we looked at Scripture alone, but it's by faith alone, through grace alone, and the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And God so thoroughly does every aspect of our salvation from eternity past to eternity future that God alone uh, gets the glory. And they realize that even faith has to be given by God. We can't even supply that. Uh, scripture makes it very clear there wouldn't be anybody that would come to God unless God drew them. And interestingly, even Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century leader who led Rome, uh, led at that time the true church more and more into Roman Catholic ideas, at that time he still believed, he was a predestinarian who believed that we're saved by grace and even faith has to be supplied. So the Roman Catholic Church got a lot worse than its uh, founder, uh, Thomas Aquinas. But uh, anyway, Luther and the other reformers taught the five solas, and here's the problem. In the last 40 to 50 years, the evangelical church has been systematically abandoning the five solas. Many of them don't realize that they've even abandoned them. Many, if you ask them what are the five solas, wouldn't have a clue as to what those are. So what we've been doing is we've been taking a break from our series on Samuel and going back to the foundations of the Reformation. Now, on the first Sunday, we looked at sola scriptura, or scripture alone. That's what sola means, is alone. And we saw that the Bible is quite literally the foundation for not just those things which are invisible, things like salvation and angels and demons and heaven and things like that, but it's also the foundation for mathematics and the foundation for linguistics and parenting and church discipline, logic and music and health, you name it. Okay, when we learn to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4, verse 4, and we approach the word with an expectation that it does speak to all of life, we begin seeing that the Bible says a whole lot more about life than most people give it credit for. As Second Peter 1 words it, the Bible gives to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so the church today needs to have a restored confidence in the, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture. So that was the first sola, sola scriptura. The second sermon dealt with the Reformation doctrine of sola gratia, or grace alone. And Titus 2, 11 through 15, gives a revolutionary paradigm for the far-reaching implication of the biblical doctrine of grace. I mean, it absolutely turns everything upside down. Everything that's going to count for eternity flows from grace. And we saw last week that there are many evangelicals who have actually abandoned that sola as well. They do not see it as sola gratia. Now today I want to look at the Reformation doctrine of sola Fide, faith alone, and more uh, uh, specifically, it is forensic justification by faith alone. The whole controversy of sola fide revolves around the doctrine of forensic justification. Now, you might wonder why 
this is even a controversy why we would need to teach on it. It's such a basic, basic doctrine, and it is. But you need to remember, Satan doesn't just shoot his cannons against the flags that are flying over the fortress. He shoots his cannons at the foundations, doesn't he? He tries to erode the foundations of Christianity. And there are numerous evangelicals who are now denying the Reformation's teachings on how we get saved, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. We saw even last week how the World Alliance of Evangelicals is, is getting cozy with Rome and doesn't understand the distinctions on their views of salvation. Uh, I talked to a pastor of a large church in this town of Omaha, and he told me that the brilliant scholar N.T. Wright, and I admit he is pretty brilliant, but that Wright had convinced him that the Protestant church has been wrong all of these years when they have described justification as a legal concept and a legal declaration in a courtroom, okay, and a great exchange of our sins to Jesus and of Jesus' righteousness to us. And I was flabbergasted. I was shocked because this guy is a pretty well-known uh, evangelical. As I started dialoguing and talking with him, I began realizing he's really gotten soft on all five of the solas. And N.T. Wright's new perspective theology has deceived many people and shaken their confidence in the gospel. Well, this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to be giving you the old perspective, okay? Not the new, but an old perspective, the perspective of Jesus and showing how that really is quite consistent with the perspective of Paul and James. But let me start by reading some astonishing quotes from N.T. Wright. And I could give quotes from leading evangelicals who have been following uh, N.T. Wright on this, but I know some of you have been reading N.T. Wright yourselves, and uh, so I'm going to go straight to the source and warn you that he is a heretic. And I am naming him because I would really encourage you actually not to read him, just stay away from him. I know he's being promoted as being the best thing that's come around in the last couple hundred years. He's being very much uh, respected in Reformed and non-Reformed circles. And I am telling you, he is a wolf in sheep's clothing. N.T. Wright says, quote, The gospel is not an account of how people get saved, unquote. Wow. He must have quite a different definition of the gospel, and he does. Now, let me quote him again and contrast that with a quote from the Apostle Paul. And he writes, said, the gospel is not an account of how people get saved. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you by which you were saved. So Wright says it's not about getting saved. Paul says... It is about getting saved, so even if you don't understand all of the nuances and uh, the things that N.T. Wright is saying, and he's just brilliant in the way he writes, I will have to admit that, but even if you don't understand all of that, that one statement ought to be clear enough to show you he's got a different gospel than the gospel that Paul is preaching. Paul didn't care how brilliant N.T. Wright is, how many insights he makes on the Scripture. Paul warns us in Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. N.T. Wright says the gospel is not about getting saved. 
Paul says it is about getting saved. This means that N.T. Wright is wrong about the gospel, and so Paul says, let N.T. Wright be accursed. And people say, but, 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 but he says so many good things. He loves the Lord. He's, he's doing this and that. And Paul says, no. Even if I, the Apostle Paul, preach any other gospel than what has been declared to you, let me be accursed. If an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel to you than what I have preached, let him be accursed. We must not honor what Paul, the Apostle, has cursed. That is the point. Okay, When Auburn Avenue Conference had N.T. Wright as one of its keynote speakers, I was floored. I was absolutely flabbergasted. Now, many of the people at Auburn Avenue and their, their theology, many of them are, are, are good guys. I think some of them are very, very confused. But we must not honor what Paul curses. Let me give you some other quotes. N.T. Wright doesn't just redefine the word gospel. He redefines the word justification. He says, quote, Justification is not how someone becomes a Christian. In standard Christian theological language, it wasn't so much about soteriology as about ecclesiology, not so much about salvation as about the church. And he must have a radically different definition of justification than the reformers had, and he does. He claims that justification is a declaration of who is in the church and who is not in the church, and you can see why some of the Auburn Avenue people have called baptism justification, okay? Uh, it's because it's a declaration, you know, that they are uh, in the church. Uh, once you are in the church, they say, you need to persevere in keeping God's law by grace, and if you don't, on the final day of judgment, you will get unjustified, or you will be out of the church. And it is possible to be out of the church and in of the church, but you can't be unjustified, okay? You're either justified or you are not. And I'm giving these uh, quotes to you so that um, you can see that when he says this is an amazing new paradigm shift, it is a paradigm shift, but it's a paradigm shift in the wrong direction. Now, not all of the Auburn people buy into his redefinitions of gospel and justification, but they are not being careful and warning you about the dangers of this man. Now, it gets worse. He logically has to throw out the idea that justification has to do with the imputation of our sins to Jesus and the imputation of God's righteousness to us. By the way, there are some people like James Jordan who have denied imputation just like N.T. Wright has. Um, uh, thankfully, Doug Wilson has not done so, but some of the, the others have. Anyway, the Reformers taught that the righteousness of justification is an alien righteousness. Now, by alien, they did not mean, you know, something that came out of a UFO and is green and got a big head or something like that. If I went to Mexico, I would be an alien, okay, because I'm not a citizen of that country. I'm coming from outside and so an alien righteousness is a righteousness that does not dwell within me. It's a righteousness that comes from out there. Okay, It's the righteousness of Christ. And our parable clearly speaks to this concept of justification. It wasn't a righteousness that this sinner had inside of himself. He didn't have any righteousness. Anyway, N.T. Wright completely dismisses the Protestant doctrine of imputation, and he says this. 
it makes no sense whatsoever to say that the judge imputes, there's his denial of imputation, imparts, bequeaths, conveys, or otherwise transfers his righteousness to either the plaintiff or the defendant. Righteousness is not an object, a substance, or a gas which can be passed around the courtroom. If and when God does act to vindicate his people, his people will then, metaphorically speaking, have the status of righteousness, but the righteousness they have will not be God's own righteousness. That makes no sense at all. But let me read what Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 9. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is through the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Where is it from? It's from God. It's not my own righteousness. It's a righteousness that is from God. That is as clear a contradiction of N.T. Wright as you can get. What kind of people is it that God justifies? Well, N.T. Wright says that God justifies people who have at least some intrinsic spirit-wrought righteousness. In other words, he justifies people because initially they're regenerated. God's put some good that's in there. And then they become better and better law keepers, at least in part. And what does Paul say? He says, quote, But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. And by the way, the word accounted is a word occurs over and over in the uh, Old Testament and the New Testament. It's imputation. Okay, But I want you to notice, Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. He acquits the guilty. How in the world could God do that? Well, that's the miracle of justification that we're going to be looking at today. And I hope that by the time we are done with this sermon and all the way through this sermon, you are going to praise God and stand in awe that any of us could be saved. It really is a wonderful doctrine. It's no wonder it's called the, the crown jewel of the Reformation. How can God call wicked people righteous without being unjust himself? See, that's the mystery. In our parable, God does not justify the Pharisee who has tried his hardest to keep God's law, but he does justify the miserable tax collector who spent a lifetime breaking God's laws and who has fully admitted he's a sinner, deserves to be cast away. This parable amazingly illustrates what Harry A. Ironside described when he said, I've heard of only two religions. The one covers all who expect salvation by doing, the other all who have been saved by something done. And if you are in the camp of those who think that you are saved by doing something, you are done for, okay? It's all over. You're in trouble. Jesus is offended with this Pharisee who thinks that by doing something with God's help, he can be saved. It is a deadly doing that the Apostle Paul says deceives us and sends us straight to hell. In the great hymn, it is finished, James Proctor wrote, Cast down your deadly doing, down, down at Jesus' feet, stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. God justifies the ungodly when they put their faith in Jesus. God justifies the tax collector, like this tax collector here, when they put their faith, in his case, in the coming Messiah, Jesus. And yet N.T. Wright's attempt to reconcile Paul and James actually destroys the practical benefits of both Paul and James. 
N.T. Wright insists that spirit-wrought good works are not only involved in our salvation and our justification, well, they are involved in salvation, the sanctification part, but he says they're not only involved in our justification, they are the basis of our justification. He says Paul has spoken in Romans 2 about the final justification of God's people on the basis of their whole life. And we'll look at that verse a little bit later in the sermon. He goes on. Paul, in company with mainstream Second Temple Judaism. Now that should be a hint. There's something goofy going on here. If Paul's gospel is the same as the gospel of, uh, of the Judaism of Christ's day, then you need to believe, doesn't matter how much he talks about grace, N.T. Wright is promoting legalism. He is not pr promoting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But anyway, he says... Paul, in company with mainstream Second Temple Judaism, affirms that God's final judgment will be in accordance with the entirety of a life led, in accordance, in other words, with works. But Paul affirms over and over again that we are justified by faith apart from works. And there are many, many other ways in which N.T. Wright's teaching undermines justification by faith alone and shows that he holds to another gospel than the gospel that Jesus or Paul or James preached. He unfortunately merges the concepts of forensic that are found in the Old Testament of forensic justification, which he actually ditches, but there's a sense in which he merges forensic justification with declarative justification into one. And I'll talk about those two terms a little bit more later on. But let's dig into the text. Look at verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now this verse highlights two problems. Uh, in this text, we're going to be looking at two problems, two people, and two results. But verse 9 deals with two problems, and the first problem really has to do with the focus that the Pharisee has, and they can be summed up in the two phrases, self-trust and self-righteousness. Notice that the ones Jesus is talking to trusted in themselves. Now, that did not mean that they didn't also trust in God. In fact, in the parable, Jesus is going to have the Pharisee thanking God for all of the good things that he has been doing. In other words, the Pharisee is not stupid enough to think that he can talk about doing good works independently of God because he sees justification as based on the good works wrought by God's grace. Now, N.T. Wright is wrong about Paul's view being the same as mainstream Judaism, but N.T. Wright's own view is the same as mainstream Judaism. It really is. Because the Jews of that day didn't think, oh yeah, we're going to be saved by our own good works. No, they, they thought they were going to be saved by the Spirit's inworking of good works in them that they were producing. And so really, his views were the same. But when you introduce any of our works into justification that saves, you're making a bridge over the Grand Canyon with timbers that are supplied from your own life, and that's not a safe thing to do. It suddenly destroys the security of the gospel. For the Pharisee, it is a trust in God plus self-effort, not God alone. Any trust in self for our salvation implies we can contribute something to our salvation, and that is a problem. At its core, the problem with N.T. Wright is the same as the problem with Rome, whom, by the way, he accepts as bona fide Christians. Why not? 
uh, we need to realize that Rome didn't deny the need for grace. You know, the Romanists of that day at the Council of Trent, they spoke about grace, grace, grace all the way through. The grace begins, it undergirds, it finishes uh, our, our walk. They just denied the doctrine of sola gratia. They didn't deny the need for Christ. They just denied He's the only mediator and the only person who has to be involved in, in our salvation. And N.T. Wright doesn't deny the need for grace either. Uh, they, you know, the, 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 the Romanists in the Council of Trent, they actually anathematized the true gospel. They anathematized the word alone. And anathematizing basically says, let him go to hell who believes that we are justified by grace alone. That's what they're saying. So they were castigating the Apostle Paul to hell. Well, I'm sorry, Paul's not going there. But... Uh, uh, they didn't like that word alone. N.T. Wright doesn't deny the need for grace. Nobody would listen to him if he did. Every good work that he believes will be the basis for our justification will be a grace produced in us by the Holy Spirit. So he can claim it's all of grace, right? So what's the problem? Well, the problem is we're trusting in something that's going on inside of us rather than trusting the finished work of Jesus that happened 2,000 years ago. It transfers the basis for justification from something objective out there, okay, that Jesus has done to something subjective in here, a doing in cooperation with the Spirit. Well, suddenly you've got a different religion, okay? It's a religion of doing. So the first issue is trusting in themselves, a subjective basis for trust. But the second half of the first problem is what the trust for justification is all about. The text says, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Introducing our own righteousness into justification, even if it is spirit-wrought righteousness, blows the whole doctrine of justification up. The standard of God's law is perfection, not good works outweighing bad works. I mean, the biblical doctrine, as uh, we will see, is an alien righteousness that is not in us but outside of us, and credited to our account. Now, just as a side note, what Jesus does here is He says those who have self-trust and self-righteousness, they tend to despise others, right? Why would they do that? Well, the reason is simple. If you think you're pretty good, you're using a defective measuring stick, okay? You're measuring goodness by a human standard, not by God's standard. Now, they, the measuring stick that the Pharisees used was so high None of the people in Israel felt like they could keep up, that they could even remotely achieve uh, what the Pharisees were able to achieve. They really were amazing people in some senses of the word. But if the measuring stick of this tax collector was one foot tall, I'm sure he probably did nice things to his family, and I'm sure there were some good works he did in his family. So if his measuring stick was one foot tall and the Pharisees was 20 feet tall, God's measuring stick was a mile tall, and it made both the, the Pharisee and the, 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 the tax collector look very, very bad. So that's the first problem, self-trust and self-righteousness. It's trusting something going on inside of us, and that becomes a substitute. Even if you call it grace, it becomes a substitute for trusting in the completed redemption of Jesus, that Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Now, the second problem in verse 9 is sinfulness. Okay? This is also inside of us. Now, it's only hinted at in verse 9 in the phrase, and despise others. Now, why would 
the Pharisee despise others? Well, because he can see this guy is such a bad guy. I mean, there's something too to be, you know, to, 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 to see there. there. He had sins all over him. And sin is indeed an obstacle to union with God. He is a perfect God, and Scripture says he is of more pure eyes than to behold evil. Now, let me read you some scriptures that the Pharisees would have been very, very well schooled in. Psalm 5 says of God, You hate all workers of iniquity. Now, the Pharisees loved that verse. That was kind of a theme verse for them. You hate all workers of iniquity. Proverbs 11, 5 through 7 says, The wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. So there, God is not just hating the sin, it says that he hates the sinner. So the question comes, well, how can God love anyone? Well, that's the miracle of justification that we're going to be looking at today. Uh, these verses don't make sense on N.T. Wright's uh, view of justification. So Proverbs 11 says God hates sinners, and the passage goes on to say hell is a sign of God's hatred for sinners and of his love for righteousness. Proverbs 3, verse 32. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination is something that is detested, it's loathed, it is despised, okay? It's not love. And perhaps this Pharisee thought he could despise sinners because God despised sinners. What he was forgetting is that um, he was a sinner, okay? Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. The Lord hates a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. Deuteronomy 25, 16. For all who do such things and all who behave uprighteously are an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, the Pharisees used passages like that to despise others that they called sinners and they were not recognizing their own sinfulness. Okay? Uh, they failed to realize that God cannot love any of us apart from an alien righteousness by seeing us perfect in Jesus. The very concept of an alien righteousness that N.T. Wright mocks is the only hope for any of us to be loved by God. And so both self-righteousness and sin is a problem. It's a problem that should make us wonder how any of us could be saved. Now, where verse 9 describes two problems, verses 10 through 13 describe two people. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, in that culture, those two people represented the best in culture and the worst in culture. The Pharisees were the super holy people. Everybody admired them. How in the world could anybody be as holy as these guys were? And the tax collectors were considered the scum of the earth. They had a hard time finding any friends. And... He deliberately, I think, picks these polar opposites here to um, uh, illustrate what true justification is about. Now, I'm not going to go into too much depth here because I also want to get to Paul and James briefly, but let me show how Jesus presents the Pharisee as a man who had no repentance and no faith. And keep in mind, faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Okay, so if you don't have repentance, you're not going to have faith, but take a look at... Uh, now, he gave the illusion of faith. If you look at these verses, he went to the temple like believers did. He worshiped, he prayed, he thanked God for who he was. He even followed many of God's words. And yet, as I read these verses, I think you'll see he had faith in himself. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, 
I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Now, there is no repentance in his prayer because he doesn't see anything to repent of. His posture is confident. He is standing, but it is a false confidence. Were God to open up his eyes to his sinful heart, he would be blown away. You know, you could see this in the Apostle Paul. He used to think of himself as pretty perfect. You know, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was uh, one of the most righteous people in Israel. And yet, God took him from Saul, the, the Pharisee, to the Apostle Paul and undid him, made him realize how incredibly sinful his heart really was. You read Romans chapter 7, even as a believer, Paul says, that his heart was terribly sinful. God opened up his mind. But this, this Pharisee here, he's blind uh, to all of that. He does not uh, see uh, his own sin. And the reason is clear. The man did not compare his holiness to the perfect standard that God has given. He had a very easy comparison. I'm not like this wretched tax collector over there. Okay, it's very easy if you compare yourself to that. His prayers obviously didn't get past the ceiling because Jesus said that his prayers really amounted to talking to himself, not talking to God. It says he prayed thus with himself, not with God, but with himself. And the heart of his prayer shows a trust in works. Now, some people uh, might say that the reason he didn't get saved is because these works were not produced by the Holy Spirit. But I, I don't think that's Christ's point at all. Uh, uh, Christ's point is that this Pharisee, his big error is he didn't recognize his sinfulness. It wasn't his good works that were the problem. He didn't recognize his sinfulness, God's perfect standard, the need for an alien righteousness, or the need to trust in a coming Messiah to save him. Now contrast that with the tax collector. Verse 13 says, And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. This man had no trust in himself at all. He had nothing to trust, right? All he knew is he was a sinner. He had violated God's laws. And so he asks for mercy, knowing full well that he deserves God's wrath. The very plea for mercy implies he knows he deserves God's wrath. Now, come, now comes the shocking old perspective on justification according to Jesus. This is verse 14, and the good guy is not justified. He's not declared righteous, which is what justified means. And the bad guy, the sinner, he is justified. He's declared righteous. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Note that this sinner was declared righteous before he left the temple. He arrived at his home a justified man. On the other hand, the Pharisee was not justified or declared to be righteous, even though he had done far, far more good works than the, the, the tax collector ever had. It was not sanctification that made the tax collector justified. Something outside of him exalted him. It says, he who humbles himself will be exalted. The grammar makes it very clear that the tax collector was passive. Okay? He didn't exalt himself. God exalted him, and he exalted him how high? Extremely high. He exalted him to the place where he's treated as perfectly righteous. Boy, that's an exaltation. That's what justified means. 
He is righteous. So this is a great passage to teach justification by faith alone. Now, how would the Jews of Jesus have understood that term that Jesus used, justify? Yeah, they, the only Bible they had was the Old Testament, right? And that's what Jesus is giving an exposition from. Well, the most frequently used, frequent usage of that term, justified, in the Old Testament was a forensic declaration in a court of law. It, it, it's a, a, legal, a legal term. The second usage of the term means to show yourself to be justified. Neither term in the Old Testament means to make righteous. That's what some people have it. Neither usage of the term justified means to make righteous, but to show yourself to be justified by your actions. Now, Greek dictionaries call the first use of the term forensic justification. Forensics deals with the courtroom, right? Um, and in the Old Testament, when an accused person is proved innocent in court, the judge justifies him. That's the word that they use. That's the, by far the most common usage in the Old Testament, forensic justification. Greek dictionaries call the second use of the term demonstrative justification. In other words, when you leave that courtroom, you're going to demonstrate your righteousness by living consistent with that declaration. James focuses upon demonstrative justification. Paul focuses upon forensic justification, but both authors speak of both concepts. Okay? He's, uh, even Jesus does. You remember in one passage, I'm not sure where it is, Jesus says wisdom is justified by her children. Okay, that's demonstrative. It's showing that uh, wisdom is demonstrated to be wise by its fruits. So which of those two types of justification best fit the context here? Was the tax collector showing the fruit of already being saved, or was he declared to be not guilty and righteous in a courtroom for the first time. Demonstrative justification would be showing a lifestyle that you're already a son of God. Okay, that can only happen after you're saved. So I think the context indicates that the tax collector showed only his sins. There wasn't anything else to show. Okay, not righteous deeds. Not yet, those would come. But he's just finished admitting he's a sinner, he's guilty, he's in need of mercy, so there is nothing in his behavior that is proving a righteous character. He would have had to have been saved already for Jesus to talk about demonstrative justification. So I think that's completely ruled out. But the only other option is that this guilty sinner was declared not guilty and righteous by God as judge. How could that be? Doesn't Proverbs 17 verse 15 say, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Yes, they are. Anytime a judge justifies the wicked, it's an abomination to God. So is there a contradiction here? I would say obviously no. Yeah, even in the Old Testament, it solves that problem, and we'll look at that. Now it's true that Exodus 23, 7 says God will not justify the wicked. And N.T. Wright, you know, the new perspective on Paul, they really emphasize that. There's got to be righteousness in you. God will not justify the wicked. Okay? But you got to compare that with Paul who says God justifies the ungodly. How can he do both? How can he do both? Well, here's how the reformers dealt with that phrase when it says, I will not justify the wicked. They are saying 
This is proof positive that when God justifies us, it is not a legal fiction. Okay, the, 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 the um, Roman Catholics accused the Reformers of, of believing in legal fiction. Okay, and it is not a legal fiction. N.T. Wright accuses us of believing a legal fiction. Think of it this way. If my son Ben, you know, was traveling, he ran out of money, and he's like, oh, I got, I got to pay for this car repair, and I won't even be able to get home. Uh, we could wire money to his bank account, uh, maybe send him $1,000. Well, car repairs, you can't get much repaired for $1,000, can you? Okay, $5,000 to his bank account. And that money, even though it's our money, would be treated as Ben's money, right? He could spend that money. It's in his bank account. And that money is real. It's not a legal fiction. God is not calling a zero, bank, a zero balance bank account a full bank account. That would be legal fiction. Okay? Instead, he is calling a Christ-filled bank account a full bank account because it is a full bank account, right? It's an alien money that's going into Ben's bank account, just like it's an alien righteousness that's being credited to our bank account, but it is a real bank account, and it's real righteousness. So don't treat it as legal fiction. It is not. That's why Ephesians 1.3 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God never overlooks sin, all sin has to be punished, and without a substitution, God would cease to be a just judge, right? But the Old Testament is full of references to God justifying sinners forensically through the positive and negative imputation of the coming Messiah. Speaking of Jesus, Isaiah 53, 11 says, My righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Okay, it doesn't deny the presence of iniquities. Instead, it says that those iniquities would be removed from the sinner, put on Jesus, who would bear those iniquities in their place as their substitute. So that's the first side of imputation. It's taking our sins, putting them on, on Jesus. And the first part of that verse talks about the, the act of obedience of Christ, which is also imputed to us. Uh, just like the sins were metaphorically imputed to the scapegoat in the Old Testament, they were imputed to Jesus. Okay, so Christ's bank account is filled up with our sin. Our bank account is filled up with His righteousness. Isaiah 45 is another Old Testament example. It says, There is no God besides me, a just God and a Savior. And that's an interesting phrase. He can only, be, he can only save us by meeting his justice in some way. Okay, so however you describe it, God has got to be just when he is being a savior. I fail to see how N.T. Wright's approach can make God just in dealing with crimes. Every crime has to be dealt with. Anyway, he says, there is no God besides me, a just God and a savior. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified. So that verse indicates there's nothing in us that is the basis for justification. Over and over again, it's talking about an alien righteousness that is not in themselves. 
Demonstrative righteousness would be referring to our own actions, not an alien righteousness. But Isaiah 45, verse 25, speaks of the ground of this justification being in the Lord himself and only in him. Psalm 89, 16 says to God, in your righteousness they are exalted. By the way, it's the same language used in the parable of the Pharisee and the, the uh, whatever his name is, the publican, the, the tax collector. He's exalted. Why? By God's righteousness. Okay? Micah was justified, Micah 7, 9, he was justified by seeing God's righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. And there are many other passages like Zechariah 3 that boldly indicate that sinners are justified. Sinners are declared righteous, not because of their own righteous deeds, but because of the righteousness of Christ. In fact, I love Zechariah 3. If I had time, I'd read you through it. It's just an amazing passage because Joshua is, is accused by Satan. You know, basically Satan's saying, you need to send him to hell. Look at all of the sins that are on him. And he looks at himself. He is absolutely covered with filthy rags. But then God says, no, get out of here, Satan. God puts an absolutely spotless garment on him that represents the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's an alien righteousness. It's not his own garments. It's Christ's garments put on it. That is justification, okay? And uh, it's such a cool passage. But the bottom line is that the people who were listening to Jesus should not have been shocked to hear him say that the tax collector was justified. Isaiah 53, 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Over and over, the Old Testament spoke about the transfer of our sins to the coming Messiah, the transfer of the coming Messiah's righteousness to his saints. So the old perspective, according to Jesus, is really the old perspective according to all the prophets of the Old Testament and it demolishes the per new perspective according to N.T. Wright. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the old perspective according to Paul, because I did quote from him in the introduction, but I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 2, and we're going to read in 2 and 3 and 4 uh, some scriptures here, because I think they're, they're very, very important to understand. We're going to, first of all, look at Romans 2 and verse 3, which is the key linchpin or N.T. Wright's arguments. And this is, the, this is the verse that they talk to, that there has to in some way be good works within us that the Holy Spirit has produced, granted it's by grace, but something within us that is the basis of justification. Now I'm going I'm to show you how if you follow the whole flow of Paul's argument here, it actually demolishes that idea. But anyway, this is the new perspective linchpin. Romans 2.13. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. They say, see, it is clear that you cannot be justified by hearing alone or by faith alone. There's got to be some of our actions that are involved in this justification that he's describing in these three chapters. Now, let's take a look at what exactly Paul is doing here. Verse 13 here is regular courtroom language from Exodus and Deuteronomy. A judge was never supposed to justify a criminal because God never justifies a wicked person. Okay? For example, Exodus 23, 7 tells judges, Do not kill the innocent and the righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. 
So it's just talking about what true justice is. A good judge is never going to let a guilty person off the hook. But many modern heretics play a trick at this point because they, 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 they sense people are, are, are nervous about this, so they take it out of the courtroom, and all of a sudden it's just a, a verse that's describing whether you're in, in the kingdom or out of the kingdom, whether you're in the church or you're out of the, out of the church. No, 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 you can't take it out of the courtroom. Over and over, this is talking about courtroom language in the Old Testament. And Paul is explaining why no man can be justified in the sight of God unless he is perfect. It's ridiculous to say that because we have some righteous deeds performed by the Holy Spirit that he's going to justify and say, wow, you are so righteous. That would be like saying that just because you've got 10 eggs, good eggs, and you only have two rotten eggs, that the omelet is justified, that the omelet is righteous, you know, that it's worth eating. No, that's not the way you look at it. Uh, Christ's whole point in Paul's whole argument in chapters 1 through 3 is that there's not a single man upon the face of planet Earth except for Jesus who could be justified by his own perfect righteousness. That's the point. To get off the hook in the courtroom, you can't have even one little bit of guilt. Now, to prove that, I want you to uh, look with me at Romans 3, 9 through 20. Romans 3, 9 through 20. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see the argument that Paul is making there? There is no mixture of good works. There is no mixture of even sanctification in justification in the courtroom because there can be no guilt whatsoever. It requires total righteousness, but what does the law do? It shows every one of us is guilty. So where do we get our righteousness from? Not inside of us, but outside. Not resident righteousness, but alien righteousness. Take a look at the next verses. Chapter 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So let me just stop there for a moment. What Paul is saying is that the doctrine of justification by faith alone that he's going to be teaching here is exactly the same justification that the Old Testament taught. Okay, It is witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, that's a removal of wrath by His blood, through faith to demonstrate what? 
His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, the, the demands of the law are fully met in Jesus so God can be just and He can still justify a sinner. That is what Paul uh, is saying uh, in, in, in that passage. And the standard of God is absolute perfection, not just some works that the Holy Spirit has done. Now, there's a lot more that we could read, but I want you to turn now to Romans 4, where he shows how even Spirit-wrought righteousness of sanctification is completely removed from the courtroom ju uh, ju justification that we're talking about. Uh, there is no resident righteousness or good works only an alien righteousness or the good works of Christ. So uh, Romans 4, uh, let's begin reading at verse 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. At the very moment of his belief, there was an accounting to his bank account of righteousness. Faith received it. Before he had done any works, he was treated as perfect. Continuing in verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who, get this phrase, justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Now, I don't know how you could get any more clear. It's while we were still ungodly that God justifies us, and he justifies us because we have put our faith in Jesus and believe that the imputation of our sins to Him took away our guilt, the imputation of His righteousness to us made us legally righteous and qualified to be sons and daughters. Now, when these new legalists are pushed into a corner on Paul, they immediately turn to James, and I do want you to turn to James with me so you can follow along. I don't want you to just have this mentally in your head. I want you to see that this really, this really does spring from the text. And... Um, I want you to show how James in no way overturns the old perspective on justification. Okay, first thing I want you to notice in chapter 2 here is that verse 1 says that the people he's talking to don't need to get saved. They're saved already. He says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. They were already brethren who had faith in Jesus, so they were already forensically justified. James will talk about the forensic courtroom justification in verse 23, and that started Abraham's life in Christ, but his main focus is going to be on demonstrative uh, justification throughout the rest of your life. And in verse 21, James will also quote a passage on demonstrative justification that happened in Abraham's life when? Forty years after he got saved. That's very important to understand. The Old Testament, Jesus, Paul, and James all insist that forensic justification, if it really has happened, will always result in demonstrative justification. We'll look at that a little bit later. But it's important to see, James is talking to brethren who believe, who are already saved. In fact, the word brethren occurs 17 times in this book. The word faith and their faith and their believing occurs over and over in this book. He is doing exactly the same thing that the Apostle Paul does when Paul says, if you're justified, you're always going to end up being sanctified. 
You cannot separate justification from sanctification. You distinguish between them, but you cannot separate from them. Well, let's take a look at some other hints that James has a focus not on forensics. He has a focus on demonstrative justification. In verse 18 it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Here's James's response. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Uh, the Greek word is uh, dexon, which means to exhibit, to show, or to display something. So he is not receiving justification. He is showing justification. You see the difference there? He's showing it. So that's a third hint that James has a focus on demonstrative justification, not forensic justification. And you see the word show all through this passage. Show, show, show. Show your faith. Show your, 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 the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, before we get to the controversial verses, I, I want to point out one more thing. The rest of the Scripture points out that there is such a thing as dead works and dead faith. Okay? Dead works are works not produced by the Holy Spirit. Dead faith is faith not produced by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, if you read in Hebrews, it says that, that uh, we need to repent of dead works. Those are the kind of works that the Pharisee had. Those are prideful works where we think we can get God's favor. We need to repent of that. That's a deadly doing that we've got to repent of and cast at the cross of the cross, uh, uh, at the foot of the cross. That's Hebrews six one. Hebrews nine fourteen says our conscience needs to be cleansed from those dead works. So there are dead works. There's dead faith. And even though James acknowledges in verses chapter two verses one through thirteen that these guys are professing faith, they are professing believers. What he's saying is he's troubled by their behavior, that their behavior is inconsistent with their profession. If they truly have saving faith, why are they so content with shallow Christianity? Why are they so lacking in zeal for holiness? That's the context. Now I want you to follow with me verse by verse, and we're going to start at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? Can that, the Greek is hey, can that faith save him? There's a hey in the Greek that unfortunately the New King James uh, Version didn't translate. He's not saying can faith save him. There's other scriptures that say faith does save us, right? It's the instrument that receives it. But he's, he, he's saying can that kind of faith save him? And if you look in a Greek interlinear, you're going to see there's an extra word in there. It doesn't have a word corresponding in the New King James. I put a that in there. Verses 15 through 16, he's basically saying that words are empty without action and faith is empty without action. Without work, you know, faith without works is empty. Words without works are empty. In verse 17, he gets to the nub of the issue and he says such a faith by itself is a dead faith. It's not a saving faith. Now in my Bible, I've underlined the phrase by itself because that was a very key phrase for the Reformers. The Reformers insisted we are justified by faith alone, but we are not justified by a faith that is alone. If your faith is alone, in other words, there's no, there's no works that flow from it, it's a dead faith, it's a sterile faith, it's a non-saving faith, it's a counterfeit faith. Okay, so they insisted that, that it's... We're saved by faith alone. I mean, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Works can't justify us. They have no bearing in the courtroom of heaven. Only Christ's works have a bearing in the courtroom of heaven. 
But James is saying, if you have a faith that is by itself, that's not zealous for good works, you need to get saved. You're dead in your sins. God has never regenerated you and given you true faith. Every supposed grace you have, he is saying, is a counterfeit grace. If it's a dead faith, it can't produce anything. And if it's a dead faith, it can't even receive forensic justification. Okay? Paul said, by the way, exactly the same thing. Let me give you a couple of scriptures. In Galatians 5, 6, he speaks of the, the faith that has already saved us as a faith working through love. Okay? In other words, a faith that saves us is a faith that's immediately going to begin to work. It's going to usher us into sanctification. Titus 3.8 says, those who have believed in God, there is faith, should be careful to maintain good works. 2 Thessalonians 1-11 says that the faith that is given by the Spirit to receive salvation is a faith that immediately begins working by God's power. So Paul and James are saying exactly the same thing, but if you go back to James and look at verse 18, he quickly corrects an error on the other side, and that is whether you can have good works without faith. Just like Paul, James denies it. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James said, it doesn't work that way. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Any faith that can be shown without works is a different faith than James has. And any works that can be shown without faith is a different works than James has. The two have to go hand in hand. Verse 19 says that the mere doctrinal belief is not saving faith. Because demons believe doctrine, or they've been around for 6,000 years. They might even know some doctrines you don't know. Okay? But that doesn't save alone. Uh, the heart, mind, will, there's a trust in God. In verse 20, he says again that faith without works is dead. In verse 21, he deals with demonstrative justification in Abraham's life 40 years after Abraham got saved. He's referring to an event in Genesis 22. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Abraham was living out the experience of what was already his position of justification. He was showing, he was demonstrating, he was truly a justified son of God. You can only show your sonship by changed life, by good works. Verse 22. Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect or mature? Notice that, that, that he says faith was working. Abraham had faith 40 years before, but it was working, and it kept working. Secondly, notice he says by works, faith was made perfect, or you can translate it as complete in the margin, or mature. The only way to mature in faith is to challenge faith with good works. And we saw last week under sola gratia that good works are supernatural works that the Holy Spirit enables us to do that no pagan would be able to do. Faith, you know, is tested not only when God calls us to cross the Jordan River, but when we are called to love the unlovable, to have joy when we are persecuted, to conquer besetting sins. According to Hebrews, Abraham so trusted God that he believed if he had to follow through on that sacrifice, God was obligated to raise Isaac from the dead. In other words, he had a faith that was willing to follow through. It banks on God's word, it acts even when the evidence against it. And every example of faith in Hebrews 11 is a faith that acts, a faith that works. Works is simply the perfection or the natural outgrow of faith. Now verse 23 describes justification by faith alone. So James talks about both kinds. Faith alone. Abraham was 85 years old in this passage 
This is uh, 40 years before in um, the uh, passage that's being referred to in verse 21. So verse 21, let, let me just compare those two verses. Verse 21 is demonstrative justification. Verse 23 is an earlier forensic justification. Actually, you know, it might be good to even write some of those in, in the margin of your Bible so you don't get confused. So verse 21 is demonstrative justification. That happened in Genesis 22. And verse 23 is forensic justification that happened in Genesis 15. He says, And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. There's where imputation took place. Forty years before. You don't have imputation in verse 21. Only demonstration. Okay? And the verse goes on to say what happened the instant Abraham believed. He was called the friend of God. So verse 23 is an earlier justification of a sinner... Verse 21 was a later justification of a saint. The justification Abraham received at age 85 was immediate, declarative, legal. It was once and forever. Justification at age 125 in verse 21 was demonstrative. It was simply the ongoing showing by lifestyle that Abraham truly was a son of God. Forensic justification brought Abraham from a state of being an enemy into being a friend. Demonstrative proved that Abraham was a friend of God. He acted like a friend. Do I need to go over those again? Why don't you just make a column on some sheet of paper and uh, put verse 21 on the left and verse 23 over on the right, and I'll, I'll try to just write down some of these notes, because I think it's really, really critical that you understand there's ten, at least ten differences between verse 21 and verse 23. Let me review these. Verse 21, he's 125 years old. Verse 23, he's 85 years old. Verse 21 is by faith alone. I'm sorry. Verse 21 is by works. I better really look at my notes here carefully when I'm reviewing. Verse 21 is by works. Verse 23 is by faith alone. Okay? Verse 21 is demonstrative justification. Verse 23 is forensic. See what other contrast do I have here? Um, verse 21, there's no imputation. No imputation mentioned. Verse 23 does have the word imputation. Um, verse 21 is demonstration. Verse 23, there's no demonstration there. Uh, verse 21, um, okay, verse 21 is justification of a saint. Wait, 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 wait. Got that backwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, verse 21 is justification. Boy, do I have these things confused? Mixed around? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Verse 125 years old, yep. 
And yeah, so it's justification of a saint. And verse 23 is justification of a sinner. Uh, let's see, verse 21 would be a progressive kind of justification. And verse 23 would be immediate. Uh, verse 21 is not legal. Verse 23 is legal. Uh, let's see here. Verse, verse 21, he's taken from being an enemy to being a friend. Oh yeah, vice versa, vice versa. He's showing that he's a friend. And, you know, it's just, it, it, what's confusing is that the, the earlier event occurs later in the chapter. But okay, yeah, verse 21, he's showing himself to be a friend, and verse 23, he's taken from being an enemy to being a friend. So you can see there's lots of differences between those two. Okay, well, that is a background. Now comes the controversial verse, verse 24. You see then, and let's stop reading there, because I want to point out he's making a logical connection with everything he has just been describing here. You see then, he's appealing to the two justifications he's just discussed in Abraham's life. He's saying to his readers, do you see that there are two kinds of justifications that, that I've been talking about? Now, all of you are Christians, so you've been forensically justified, at least you profess to be forensically justified. You've got what verse 23 talks about, but what about the other kind of justification? Do you have what verse 21 is talking about? Do you have demonstrative justification? Okay, nothing but faith is appropriate for the courtroom. In the courtroom, only Christ works justified, but outside the courtroom, and hey, you better be outside the courtroom because you're believers, right? Believers are outside the courtroom, so he's saying outside the courtroom, no one can know that you have faith without works that flow from that faith. Men can't see your faith. All they can see is good works. So, just to illustrate, church sessions use demonstrative justification all the time because we can't see if you've got genuine faith or not. So, when we're examining children... Um, you know, we can assume they have faith, but what we are only allowed to do as a session is deal with the objective, demonstrative justification. So we're looking at fruit of faith. Is there evidence of faith? That's demonstrative justification. We're not making them earn anything. That's a third category of justification you won't find anywhere in the Bible, to make something holy. Okay, that's the way some heretics, uh, you know, Roman Catholic. Yeah, God makes us. That's what justification is. It's sanctification. He's making us holy. Never is sanctification ever called justification in the Bible. We are showing something. So we don't make children earn the right to come to the table. All we're doing is we're saying, is there demonstrative justification? We're looking for fruit that flows from that. Same is true when there is a church discipline and a person is excommunicated. We're not guaranteeing that they don't have faith, that they're not forensically justified. We can't read their hearts. All God allows us to do is to deal with the outward, the objective. And because they won't repent of their, whatever it might be, adultery or whatever, and they're continuing to live in sin, they say, well, 
then it must not be a genuine faith. At least we're not allowed to treat it as a genuine faith because a genuine faith would bring forth repentance. And that's what Rodney was talking about earlier in the, in the course. So there really are practical benefits of understanding this difference between forensic justification and, and demonstrative justification. As Christ said, by their fruits you will know them. So James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, most people who talk against sola fide treat the word only as if it said alone. If they see, right here it says that the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is wrong. He says we're not justified by faith alone. No, it's an adjective. And because it, it's not an adjective, uh, it doesn't mean that. Because it's an adverb, it proves the exact opposite of what the Romanists say. Okay, the Greek word is clearly an adverb, not an adjective. Let me quote from a commentary on this to clarify the distinction. Commentary says, the Greek adverb only, monon, does not qualify or modify the word faith since the form would then have been mones. As an adverb, however, it modifies the verb justified, implied in the second clause, and not only justified by faith. James is saying that a by-faith justification is not the only kind of justification there is. There is also a by-works justification. The former type is before God, the latter type is before men. You see how it all fits together? Okay. So James has just finished distinguishing between forensic justification and a shown justification, both of which were commonly discussed in the Old Testament, and Abraham is a beautiful example of how the two justifications can be distinguished. How does James distinguish them? Uh, he appeals to two different events that are 40 years apart. That's how you can say they're two different things. Okay? Verse 23 is in Genesis 15. Verse 21 refers to an event in Genesis 22. So forensic courtroom justification and demonstrative justification are distinguished. Just like my hands. I've got two different hands. The fact that they're connected here does not mean that, that uh, you can't distinguish between them. They're different things. But in verse 25, James uses Rahab to illustrate the truth that forensic justification and demonstrative justification cannot be separated because both facets of justification occurred on the same day. They could be distinguished, as seen in Abraham, but not separated as seen by Rahab. He uses Rahab to illustrate that faith and works cannot be separated, and it's such a powerful argument. And it's imperative, I think, that we understand this to avoid the extremes of antinomianism on the one hand and legalism on the other. We've got to avoid both. They can be distinguished, but not separated. Because the moment Rahab was given saving faith by God, that living faith immediately issued into works. She immediately showed that she was a forensically justified person by taking dangerous actions that required true faith. And by the way, Hebrews 11 says the same thing is true of uh, Abraham. Uh, he, he pointed to two events 40 years apart, but Hebrews 11 says the moment Abraham believed in God, his faith was doing things. It was taking actions. So even in Abraham's life, it was not separated, even though... Uh, James distinguishes between, uh, between the two. So his point is that no person who is justified by faith alone can ever escape 
from being justified by works. You cannot have one without the other. Distinguish, yes, but verse 25 says don't separate. And then finally in verse 26 he says, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Just as a body and a spirit need each other, so faith and works need each other. It's because of the nature of faith that the two justifications cannot be separated. Saving faith leads to demonstrating faith. Faith that justifies before God will eventually justify before men. Just like I gave the examples of uh, you know, how we uh, are trying to read uh, forensic justification based upon demonstrative justification. So the old perspective of the whole Bible does not try to merge demonstrative justification into forensic justification. It clearly distinguishes them. And when the Reformation said we are justified by faith alone, they were referring to the forensic justification that forgives us, declares us righteous, and makes us forever secure in the Son. Now let me end with a parable that I've told before, but I think it illustrates the two of these, these concepts um, uh, fairly well. Just imagine that you were a criminal who has committed so many crimes you can't even remember all the crimes that you have committed. Every day you have broken the law of God in thought, word, and deed, but the law catches up with you and you're sitting in jail, depressed and knowing that the books are going to be thrown against you uh, whenever you face the courtroom. Now you look around you in that room and all around you you see other criminals, but they don't seem to recognize their sins. These other criminals are complaining, making excuses. Some curse God because God's made the laws way, way too hard, they think. Some blame their parents and their upbringing and their environment, but you don't do any of that. You recognize your sinfulness and that you deserve uh, God's wrath. And uh, so you're feeling pretty hopeless and lost. There's no way that a good judge is going to let you off the hook. Into the room walks Jesus Christ, and you're surprised he even knows you. You're even more surprised when he starts listing off all of your sins, even sins that nobody else on planet Earth knows about, sins of the heart. And he knows all of your sins inside and out. You're horrified with how evil he describes your life, and yet, despite all of that, he tells you that he's willing to be your attorney and to represent you in court and to encourage you, he says, there's not a single person I've ever represented in court that I've not been able to get declared uh, innocent. So he's willing to represent you if you will trust him. And you say, sure, I guess I don't have much of a choice, do I? He says, but there are a couple of conditions. And the first condition is that you need to confess everything I've just told you to the judge and to everybody else. You're just horrified. You say, I couldn't possibly confess all of these things. You know this judge. He never lets anybody off the hook. This judge never justifies a wicked person. I couldn't do that. And besides, I think I'd be pretty humiliated if my friends knew some of the things that you're telling uh, about me. And so I don't think that I can confess these sins. And so Christ responds, well, if you're not willing to confess your sins and trust in me, then I'm not going to be your lawyer. You're going to have to face the judge on your own. Well, it's embarrassing, it hurts, but you realize you have no choice, and so you agree. You agree, and Jesus says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take your name on me. I'm going to go before the judge. I'm going to plead guilty, and the judge is going to kill me in your place. When you get before 
the judge and he throws the books at you, just plead guilty and say, yes, I deserve, I, I deserve hell. I deserve to die. Uh, but I've already paid the penalty. Just look it up in the books. They'll look it up in the books and they'll say, okay, sure enough. It says right here that Phil Kaiser died in 30 A.D. And uh, it also says here that the debt was paid in full and $30 trillion have been credited to Phil Kaiser's account. And Phil Kaiser is fully righteous. He is fully funded. Legally, the court will not be able to do anything to you. Since there cannot be double jeopardy, you're off the hook. You know, double jeopardy, right? It's where you get punished twice for the same crime. Well, if your crimes have already been paid for, you cannot be punished for them. And they, ha they will be paid for. But there's a problem you need to know about, Jesus says. From this moment on, you will have to do everything in my name because dead people don't exist as far as the law is concerned. And according to the books, you died in 30 A.D., that means you cannot enter into any contracts on your own. You can't get married on your own. You can't eat on your own. You can't do anything on your own. Everything you do has to be done in my name. You only exist in me. You died with Christ and you live with Christ. The moment you try to do anything apart from me, the law is going to come after you. Instead, when you need something, you'll have to do it in the name of Jesus. I've established a bank account in, your, in, your, in, 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 in my name, and anything you need is available for the asking, but the check has to be signed in the name of Jesus. Come to the Father in me. By the way, those of you who aren't used to praying in Jesus' name, this is one of the reasons why we as a session say, better pray in Jesus' name. Colossians 3.17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The rest of our lives is radically changed by forensic justification. Our whole identity is tied up in Jesus. We are only secure in Him. Forensic justification, justification takes you out of prison, puts you in God's family, and now you've got to live like a daughter or a son of a king. Okay, You've got His power. Now, demonstrative justification, let's discuss that. Demonstrative justification shows you really are in God's family. You really do have His presence. You really are infilled with His Holy Spirit, with His power. You really do have trillions of dollars in that bank account in heaven. Now, if you've gone through your whole Christian life and you've never signed any spiritual checks, you've never spent a dime of that trillion dollars in heaven, there is something strangely, strangely wrong. You don't have demonstrative justification. In other words, demonstrative justification is a justification before others that shows you really are who you say you are. You really are a son of God. You really do live by his power. So if you're powerless in your Christian walk, you're saying there's no demonstrative justification. Maybe you don't have the faith that leads to forensic justification. The whole Sermon on the Mount was a call, it was actually, it was slicing through the body and it was separating between the goats and the sheep. The goats couldn't keep any of those commandments. But sons of God could. They didn't want to sometimes, but they could. Okay? So the whole Sermon on the Mount was a call to true believers to live the reality of the supernatural so that we could demonstrate true sonship. If you can't demonstrate any of the characteristics of sonship listed in the Sermon on the Mount, it is evidence you never had a living faith that has forensically justified you. That's why it's be the same faith that's dem demonstrative justification, right? 
If you don't have the faith that can do demonstrative justification, you don't have the faith that gives you forensic justification. It means you're going to hell, just like Rodney was talking about earlier in the, in the sermon. This is where we've got to evaluate our lives and why Hebrews wants us to evaluate our lives. To become sons of God, we must lay our deadly doing down and by faith stand complete in what Jesus has done. And when we have that faith to lay hold of forensic justification, the same faith will go on to demonstrate the reality of our relationship through the good works that we're continually doing. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen. Father God, I pray that none of us would be deceived into thinking we are saved when in reality we are trusting in ourselves, trusting in a piece of paper, trusting in a dead profession. Father, we repent of any dead works that were not produced by your Holy Spirit. You have called upon us to build on the foundation of Jesus Christ when we are saved. But anything that is hay, wood, and stubble will be burned up and will not count for eternity. Father, we don't want to get into heaven with everything burned up, maybe just a small jewel here and there. We want to lay up treasures in heaven. We want everything to count for eternity. And so we pray that you would help us to live out the kind of faith that James calls us to live out. That we would build on the foundation by grace, by your Holy Spirit, and demonstrate that we truly do have those trillions of spiritual dollars in the bank account in heaven, that we truly are indwelt by your Holy Spirit, that we truly can uh, even do miracles by faith in what your Spirit produces. Make Galatians 3 to be true of us, not just saved, but living the rest of our lives by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We thank you for having so clearly distinguished at the time of the Reformation between forensic justification and demonstrative justification. Father, we love this doctrine. We can see why it is called the crown jewel of the Reformation. It gives us so much confidence. Father, our confidence is not in ourselves. We stand in Jesus complete. And so we pray, Father, you would cleanse us from dead works, cleanse us from dead faith, and give us a living faith that transforms by your grace everything that we do. Bless us, your people. Strengthen us. Cause us to grow in you, we pray in Christ's name.